Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, and I'm here today with another special guest from the House of Works offices. Yeah. Hi, Sarah. I'm Ben Bolin. Uh, I am a co-host of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know and a co-host of Car Stuff. So Ben seemed like a natural person to have during this little September series while Dublina is still out on maternity leave. And because Ben does cover two subjects, cars and conspiracies, it was sort of a toss-up what I wanted you to come on the show and talk about. But, I mean, conspiracies, that's really your specialty almost. I don't know if you're going to like oh. anything. <laughs> no, that's that, that's fine. Thanks so much. I, uh, I'm really happy to be here, and I will put my tinfoil hat on for this episode at least because, uh, well, first, you know, Spoiler alert, I think maybe we'll have a podcast from Scott a little later in the future. I think we will on cars and and famous figures in auto history. Yes, and uh, we have that to look forward to. Uh, So today, let's take a look at a conspiratorial episode in U.S. history. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about a senator called Joe McCarthy and a little period called the Red Scare. You may have heard of it before. And we're just going to sort of go over the background and the lead up to McCarthy's uh, rise to power, as you might call it, in this first episode. And then because this is such a huge story, we're going to keep on going and take it into a second podcast where we cover more about McCarthyism, where we talk about the Hollywood blacklists, all of the sort of better known side of McCarthyism. Yeah. And this is a good story because it's got all the perils, you know, it has everything a good story usually has except for romance. No romance, as far as we know, at as least. As far as we know, uh, Joe didn't really have that side of the story <laughs> play out. But we're going to see uh, how a conspiracy theory or a public panic can sort of get into the public consciousness and sweep the nation along, which is sort of what happened here. But... To really understand how this crazy situation occurred, we do, as you say, uh, have to go back to the beginning, right? What what were people afraid of? They were afraid of communism. They were afraid of communism. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. And American post-war policy, so post-World War II policy, was one of containment. So trying to contain this threat of communism abroad. But by the late 1940s, it seemed like things weren't being contained that well. The Soviets had the bomb. Uh, China had become communist. Mm. And people were, were becoming concerned with that, except that they were also already concerned with communism at home. And that was a really big part of it. Yeah, because there was a genuine communist party in the United States, and it had been there since 1919. As a as a funny aside, the Red Scare we're talking about today is actually the second Red the Scare, second wave, which is so which is so strange um, that we've had this Red Scare, this widespread fear of communism, not once but twice in our nation's history. Uh, there again. Genuine Communist Party is organized in 1919 in the United States. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean, though, that every single member of this party is some sort of extremist or a terrorist. Some agent. Spot. Right, right, a sleeper agent. Um, real life is just not that cool. They might just have different political inclinations. Mm-hmm. But to combat this perceived threat of communism at home, the government had been 
investigating these groups, investigating suspicious activity for a number of years, really. Mm -hmm. Yes, and through several committees. Now, we're going to talk about the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, fairly frequently in parts of this podcast, and we'll probably just call it the HUAC. Yeah, I think that'll make it easier on us for sure. Yes, it's also important to remember that the HUAC did not come out of the blue. No. Right. It comes from, instead, a a sort of lineage of other similar committees that preceded it and then investigated suspicious groups. Now, when we say suspicious at this point in time, this is pre-1930s, 1940s, we're not just talking about communism. We're talking also about perhaps uh, fascist groups. We're talking also about um, hate groups such as the Ku Klux Klan. And from these committees, uh, the, the one directly in front of the HUAC is called the Dyes Committee. It's named after uh, the congressman who was heading this committee. The HUAC becomes a permanent committee in 1945. And what's interesting about that is the sort of predecessor of the HUAC, before it became a permanent committee Mm -hmm. at least, it wasn't very popular with lawmakers because it was a little Mm witch-hunty, it was expensive, and folks sort of thought that once Dyes retired, it might just go away. But uh, surprise, surprise, a representative from Mississippi named John Rankin really got into this and and worked to make sure that the committee got standing status. And many lawmakers, they might have not been thrilled with the idea of this unpopular committee continuing, Mm -hmm. but they felt compelled to vote for it because not voting for it could easily be perceived as doing something un-American if he's out there stating that its mission is going to be to investigate communists that might be hidden in the government. Yes, absolutely. People don't want to look like they support communism. This is a situation where maybe bad policy is good politics, if that makes sense. That makes sense to me. And so you have this new committee. It doesn't have a very popular past, and they've got to make a name for themselves. And so the HUAC really kicked off its investigations by focusing on Hollywood and the entertainment industry at first. And that was good publicity because it would stir up fear that Hollywood was um, just about the biggest, best, highest budget mm-hmm. propaganda machine that you could have. I mean, if communists were there, Hollywood would be, it would seem like a great place to go. And Hollywood already sort of had a love-hate relationship with the federal government because it was, it's very easy if you want to value vote to paint Hollywood as this just den of debauchery and sin and un-American values. So this is a natural progression. It's also a very shrewd choice. It is because you know who's in Hollywood, big stars, mm-hmm. celebrities, people who if you order them to come talk to your House committee, it's going to make the news. And and that's exactly what happened. The investigations of the motion picture industry started in 1947. And at first, they really did focus on big stars. And some of these were friendly witnesses. So they weren't uh, so much accusing these people of anything, but they wanted to get them out there talking. And an example of this is Gary Cooper. He was asked if the Communist Party should be outlawed in the United States. And He answered essentially, I don't know, I haven't read Marx, I don't really know much about communism, but from what I have heard, I don't like it. So, you know, just a good soundbite, a good thing mm-hmm. for the newspapers to cover Gary Cooper before this House committee. It was a it was a good way to get news about what they were doing out to the public. And also a way to get 
the public on your side. At this point, it seems as though, if the witness is friendly, it seems as though everybody could win. The committee looks good. Heck, the celebrity might get a chance to plug their upcoming films. We'll talk more about that later because we'll not everybody was getting the softball question. Right, but, right. But, of course, these investigations by these groups did turn out some evidence of real espionage eventually. Not so much Hollywood, but uh, real possible spies were uncovered. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but mm-hmm. let's discuss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's discuss this. And we'll we'll be able to go into a little bit of depth about why these why why we're choosing our words so carefully when we say evidence of alleged espionage. <laughs> um, it's still a matter up for debate. Our number one person would probably be considered Alger Hiss. Now, he, in 1948, the, an admitted ex-communist named Whitaker Chambers tells the, uh, tells the committee that this Hiss fellow, who works for the State Department or used to work for the State Department, is a communist. And what's more, he says he's a communist spy. Now, currently, Hiss at this time is not the kind of guy you would think of as a spy. He's, uh, first off, he's from an established American family. He worked for the State Department. He's president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Hardly a shifty character. He's got a lot of friends who even come forward and say, no way. There's no mm. way that this could be true. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point. Now, of course, his is not the only person that Chambers accuses. He also names, uh, people like Ward Pigman, uh, Julian Wadley, other, uh, other people that may or may not be spies. And here's the thing with Hiss. Hiss is actually convicted in 1950, but he's not convicted of spying. No, because during his hearings in front of the HUIC, he comes across as very polished, very level-headed, especially compared to Chambers, who (laughs) doesn't come across that way. Not at all. Um, Even though there's still some pretty suspicious evidence that comes out in these hearings, namely the best-named papers ever, the pumpkin papers, which were (laughs) apparently stored by Chambers in a hollowed-out pumpkin in his pumpkin patch. Um, Even though some of that seems pretty questionable for, for Hiss's innocence, the hearing is considered inconclusive. It's when he decides to sue Chambers for libel that he finally is convicted of something. Yes, and he is convicted of perjury in 1950. Uh, again, this is not a conviction that the committee gives him, but this this mark, uh, this conviction of perjury, certainly affects the way people think about his case. And... Uh, You made such a good point earlier, Sarah, about star power, about how using celebrities will sort of legitimize the HUAC. Uh, Somebody else caught on to this very quickly, and that person was Richard Nixon. He was involved. Yes, Richard Nixon was one of the driving forces in the Hiss case. And uh, you can make a fairly strong argument that this made him prominent enough on the national sphere I mean, it certainly contributed to him later running for the presidency. Yeah, it it certainly elevates his recognition nationally. So today, though, we we were saying that this is an alleged case of spying. Right. Um, Today, historians still discuss whether or not Hiss was actually a Soviet spy. And if he was, how much did he do? And Mm -hmm. the reason behind that is because papers do continue to be de- declassified, some suggesting pretty strongly that he may have really yeah. been a spy. Mm-hmm. 
and then he also has uh, he also has a group of historians who say that for one reason or another he was not a spy that he was just being caught up in the moral panic that we're we're going to see coming out here. Um, but the thing is, as these documents were declassified, most notably the Venona papers, uh, they contain stuff from the KGB that we had not heard of, we being the American public. And, uh, you know, I'm not being a KGB spy master myself, <laughs> I'm not going to say one thing either, uh, either way definitively other than there is still a surprisingly vigorous debate over uh, which of the people Chambers accused of spying were actually spies. But, you know, we can we can debate over that all we want. But, of course, at the time, it seems like this is a fairly successful case yeah. against a possible spy. Mm -hmm. The next big case came in March 1951, and that's when Julius and Ethel Rosenberg went to trial for, quote, conspiracy to commit espionage. And um, this is another case that is debated endlessly, how much involvement they had, how much involvement especially Ethel Rosenberg had. Mm -hmm. They were found guilty, though. They were sentenced to death, electrocuted at Sing Sing Prison on June 19th, 1951. So, we're going through all of this just to give you guys a good picture of what the world is like at this time. So we have Gary Cooper testifying. We have people being uh, sentenced to death for for conspiracy to commit espionage. Um, and a lot of folks very scared about um, the, the state of communism in the world. Mm -hmm. And as... Uh Whitaker's chamber says, and this is something that's important to remember as we go forward, there really were some communist subversives. This was not a completely fabricated panic. It's important to remember that there's a grain, and I emphasize a <laughs> grain of, of truth to uh, to the the story. And I think now it's time to introduce our protagonist, or our, is he a protagonist? Antihero, I'm Anti not sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one Senator Joseph McCarthy. And around this time, around this time that we've been discussing, McCarthy is becoming America's number one communist hunter. And he was not involved in the trials that we've discussed. And uh, he did eventually model his cases on HUAC cases, but he was not a chair of the HUAC. Uh, he really focused his work more on the armed forces, more in the State Department, Um not so much the the celebrities and these really high-profile spies. But we've got to give you some background on McCarthy, too, because he really does kind of come out of nowhere almost. Yeah, it's strange because the he didn't have the best reputation as a senator before he became involved with these searches for communist subversives. No, not, not at all. I mean, that's why he got involved in the first place. So McCarthy had run for Senate as a Wisconsin Republican in 1946, and he had done some work before then. He had worked as a lawyer, as a judge. He had served in World War II, uh, even though he exaggerated his war record a bit in order to win his election. He claimed he was a, a tail gunner. He had a totally normal war record, nothing to be concerned about, um, mm -hmm. but pumped it up a little bit. Um, so he won his Senate seat, and then he didn't have a great reputation among his 
senator peers from the start right. either. Yeah. I read one article by Richard Cavendish in History Today who said that his colleagues considered him unscrupulous, which I think is a pretty <laughs> that word might come to mind later <laughs> in the second episode. Mm-hmm. Um, he so he wasn't too popular with them, and he only ended up getting one committee appointment. Didn't seem like a real up-and-coming kind of senator. Right. He wasn't exactly uh, someone they thought would be the president later. No, or even uh, or, even get a second term. Or attorney <laughs> senator, yeah, to be fair. Uh, this begins to change uh, shortly after the Hiss Convention. Joseph McCarthy gives one of uh, the most important speeches of his career. And... In this speech, uh, he's talking to a Republican women's group in Wheeling, West Virginia. This is 1950, February. In this speech, which which we have a a transcript of here, he begins by uh, commemorating uh, Abraham Lincoln and railing against the growing communist threat to the United States. Now, remember, this is is happening as the Hiss case has closed and as the Rosenbergs are still... Uh, in the process of getting sentenced to death. So this fear is here. And then in front of this crowd, he claims to have proof of, depending on who you ask, he claims (laughs) to have proof of either 205 individuals employed at the State Department or 57 individuals who are either communist or sympathetic to communism. Now, this speech is crazy because he literally is waving this piece of paper at these people as he's saying he has this list. He's exposing, if you will, a conspiracy theory that there's not only just one or two uh, communist subversives or Soviet agents in the government, but that the State Department especially is riddled. A with whole list's worth. A, a whole list worth. Now, here's the thing. Later, um, this you could look at this as one of the beginnings of the McCarthy era. Uh, later... The number that he quotes changes when he rehashes this speech. Sometimes it's not exactly 57. Sometimes it's not exactly 205. And there's one other thing about this list. It doesn't actually exist. There was no list. There was a piece of paper, but that's it. Nobody even knows what was on that piece of paper. So... That is our dramatic cliffhanger for today. We will pick up next time and discuss what we can about this mystery list and um, how McCarthy's career really skyrockets after this, because clearly it is a fantastic piece of stagecraft to get up, talk about what everybody is most scared of, and have a real list in your hand and wave it around. Who knows who could be on it? So we're going to be talking about all of that next time. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to to uh, email us about maybe the first Red Scare, other things that you'd like to talk about, spies, whatever it may be. You can email us. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Mist in History, and we are on Facebook. And I was trying to think of an article for this, and one that seems pretty obvious for this first part is how communism works, right? So everybody could go check that one out, get a primer, figure out what people were so concerned about in the first place, and tune in next time when Ben and I pick up the story of McCarthyism. You can find that by searching the homepage for How Communism Works at www.howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.